Welcome to the Atlas Project. It's a new world. To navigate it, we need new maps. Each episode, best-selling author Chris Katana and Scott Jones saw 50,000 feet above the immediate headlines in politics, economics, science, and society. The Atlas Project aims to reveal the big picture of where humanity is headed and the choices we all need to face. Chris, good to see you again, as always, my friend. Scott, good to uh, good to see you as well. How uh, how's the world on your side of the ocean? It's uh, the state of the union is very strong. It's incredibly <laughs> strong. <laughs> We've got the problem is though that there's an immigration crisis. I'm afraid that if I leave my house, I'll come back and there'll be two Guatemalan families that have just moved in. Like they've just they're, they're pouring over the the caravans are pouring over unless we get the wall. But, you know, it's interesting. So we won't talk too much. Well, I don't know where this conversation will For those of, who don't know me, like that was all uh, incredibly facetious. Uh, there is no immigration crisis in the United States. <laughs> immigration is like a 20-some so year low. So you say. This, uh, you know, it's, it must be so exhausting to, um, to, to be American in this political moment because, you know, as soon as... As soon as it looks like there might be, you know, some, you know, some dampening of the rhetoric and, a re, you know, some kind of return to sensible compromise on things like border security and that issue just doesn't look like it's going to uh, work as well for for the president, you know, in his in the State of the Union, uh, talking up abortion and, and amping up uh, that social division. I mean, it's 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 just I, you know, you got to be impressed with the guy. I mean, the the capacity to to uh, stoke controversy has there ever been a more controversial American president. I mean, it, but it's 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 inexhaustible. How 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 is the person who you know so clearly looks physically out of shape be capable of 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 generating you know such inexhaustible controversy in in society i you, you gotta kind of take your hat off to the man and just like wow that yeah, that he, i wasn't ready to pivot to abortion but you know too late we're there <laughs> and the democrats like it's interesting because donald trump's best reelect chance are the democrats right so you come out and you've got a majority people are really feeling anxious about the Trump presidency and and they speak in the midterms. And then you lead off with late term abortion, which is 25% of this country believes there should be no abortions at all. 25% believes in abortion on demand. 50% believe it's kind of the safe legal and right. They don't like abortion. They don't want to criminalize it. They're okay with restrictions. It's, it's a messy, complex thing where so they go for the 25%. So you're alienating the 75%. <laughs> no, aside from like complex stuff around when life begins and all that stuff, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a great joke where this, uh, there's these three clergy people are asked to speak at this, in this New England sort of intellectual lecture series about when life begins. So the first is a Jesuit priest. He gets up and says, you know, life begins at conception and argues very you know, rhetorically, forcefully and intelligently for that. His colleague, a liberal Protestant, steps up and says, you know, I, I, my colleague and I are friends and I respect him, but I, I disagree. Life begins at birth and he offers an alternative perspective. Well, there's an Episcopal priest in the third chair who's been kind of hitting his flask throughout the night. And when it's his turn, he gets up and says, look, <laughs> 
I don't know what the hell these guys are talking about. We all know life begins with the kid when the kids leave home and the dog dies. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from that kind of stuff, uh, when life begins, it's just a crazy. And then we're going to ban meat. The Democrats are going to ban meat and air travel and all this kind of like the, the Green New Deal. So, yeah. So you know, it's interesting because all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, in, in a way does relate to. Uh, to to my latest map, which maybe we'll get to talking about, and which of which know, I am a fan. It, 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 you like that, did you? I I, I, I liked I mean, it a lot. I I grappled with it for a while. I mean, the title of it of the essay is "Is the Truth a Lie?" And we'll get into maybe the details of sort of what we were thinking about there, but specifically on on abortion, on immigration, on all these issues. You know, something that that I feel quite strongly is that within a democracy, the truth, whatever that is, it, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look really complex, right? The truth is going to be a very complex, messy, sort of difficult to disentangle object in our reality. And, and so you can, you can kind of, it, if you accept that, you can very quickly spot when, when somebody's not talking truth because of the way that everything gets essentialized. Whether it, whether it's the truth about uh, about life, I mean, the the debate about late term abortion seems to so often exclude so much uh, complexity about you know the kind of circumstances in which uh, you know a mother uh, or an expectant mother or a family are contemplating a late term abortion, right? I mean, I mean, this isn't about oh, I want to commit infanticide. It's more about I'm in this awful circumstance where i maybe need to choose between my own life and giving birth like my life is at risk here or there's been some you know catastrophe late in the pregnancy and 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 the fetus has died in the womb and now there's a question of so how do we safely return the woman to health i mean it, 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 Every yeah, single but, one but, of these but, cases but, is, but a, is a complex left, tragedy. Yeah, and, how the left argues for that is not in terms of complexity, but in terms of rights language. So it's like, so you're, you're forced to push this. When you use rights language in abstract terms, you're, for, you're forced to, to sort simplify. Of, yeah, because rights yeah, are absolute, right? And, right yeah. Exactly. And so it doesn't matter the, you know, the, uh, and it's interesting because, do you know, you know, Rawls's um, Veil of Ignorance? Yeah, the idea is John Rawls, the great 20th century liberal democratic theorist at Harvard, saying like, basically, you should when you're making any public policy, you should be behind a veil of ignorance. Yeah, pretend that you don't know what side of that issue you might wind up being on. So if you're doing like fracking laws, you should not know whether you're the person in whose yard they're fracking or, or adjacent to the yard they're fracking or, or you're making the profits from the fracking. You, you Why said, on earth was that the example that your head grabbed? At? I mean, eh, have you got some oil company in your backyard? <laughs> no, no, like, Scott, no. Scott, well, we there, well, actually, there are around here, but I was just thinking like because profit margin and energy expansion versus polluting my yard. like, And so you'd want to be okay with whatever, you know, wherever the chips fell. Or there's a British right. uh, thinker, I forget. He, his version of this is, you can cut the pie however you want as long as I take the first slice. Same kind of mm. idea. So mm. I heard a conservative thinker say, using Rawls saying, well, I mean, come on, with a veil of ignorance, right? I, all of us would not want to be late-term aborted. <laughs> I'm thinking it's the absolute <laughs> rights versus the absolute Rawlsian. So like you're kind of, I mean, it's just, 
these things, these debates become almost inane at that level of abstraction. I guess there's some. So this is very interesting. This this issue, this this question of you know, so much of our uh, discourse with one another in a democratic society is kind of framed in in rights language, my rights and your rights, and how these rights contest. And so that's interesting that, you know, does that, does that actually, does that language, does that frame make it harder for us to appreciate and explore the, the real complexity of truths? Because to assert a right is basically to say that uh, this interest or this way of looking at the situation overrides all other interests or all other complexities that you might bring into this story. And therefore, End of discussion. There's no need to have a conversation. Yeah, and we tend to look at it as a zero-sum game. So you look at like gun control in the United States. Most NRA members are for a lot of sensible restrictions that are hard to get past. But the problem is the the advocates, like the the NRA, the the sort of political machination, the, the you know the political machination. I was going to say machine again, but you know the the big bureaucratic people group that lives in Washington and hangs out with Congress people all day. They look at it like, well, any move in the direction of our lobbying opponents is like, we lost one, they gained one. And so you can't, you know, like, I, I'm surprised we even got bump stocks passed, you know, the thing that turns a semi-automatic weapon into an automatic weapon by sort of vibrating it quickly against your shoulder while you're pulling the trigger. I mean, that, I mean, that should have been a layup, but like, that's, again, because it, it's viewed in this absolute, if, if I give a little bit in the interpretation of this right, then my opponent's gain and in this zero-sum game you know that that i'm a loser in this confrontation and it's you know it's not a helpful frame for good public policy i think that it's great for it's great for cable news though (laughs) yeah but i think in all that what you really need to do for our listeners is explain what a layup is because i'm not sure if all oh it's like in in basketball you know when you're running up and it's like you're just you're you know you're you're like three feet from the basket and you just sort of jump up in the air and just gently throw the ball towards the hoop and it either bounces in or swishes in and it's an easy a layup is a, is a shot that should not be very missable and yet and yet it, so you know what's interesting is so i start to wonder if all this stuff is related right the divisiveness in our public debates the the kind of ubiquity of of rights language in our attempt to win these debates and this you know phenomenon of whether you call it you know fake news or, 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 or what, but the, the willingness to accept not only simple truths, but simple lies as ways to advance your, advance your agenda or advance your perspective in society. And, and so I was kind of thinking about that in, in, in the last couple of weeks and, and in writing, writing this essays, is the truth a lie? And, and, you know, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking about the time that I had lived in China and you know one of the interesting things about living in an authoritarian state is that sort of all of the engines of producing truth in society are kind of lined up to to drive in the same direction. Is that scary? By the way, at what point do you get off the plane and you're gonna and you were you owned a business there, right? It, at what point are you like, oh, I'm in an authoritarian state? All right, like uh, <laughs> I'm exiting. Uh, the liberal democratic norm, I'm norms and landscape I'm uh, accustomed to, and now I am in an authoritarian state. I mean, that's 
Like, what's the daily yeah, no, well, anxiety increase? Like, so, in, so in an authoritarian that, state. Mm, so you know, so that realization in China happens pretty quickly because as a foreigner, if if you're doing anything more than staying in a hotel uh, for a period of time, you need to register at the local which is basically uh how would you translate that it's like it's like the the district security office so that's like that that's you know if if you if you read the fine print you're you're obligated to do that within 24 hours of arrival if you stay in a hotel or detail than people need but if you stay in a hotel the hotel does it automatically but if you're staying in a residence or something like that then you register um and so you 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 discover pretty quickly that there's a level of uh of 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 the the necessity to give up your privacy within that society, and then the other time that you you very quickly encounter the the truth that you're in an authoritarian state, if if you ever have an encounter with the police, uh, and you know there's something about uh, maybe you see it in television programs, or if you know we've ever been pulled over by 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 the cops for speeding, not that I ever have, but but there's this sense of of uh, I think injustice that we often feel and and uh, and and power that we feel when the state's authorities um get in our way right you know i've i've got rights and you've got to follow procedure and all these different things and you know why are you pulling me over whereas uh when you encounter uh when you encounter the police in china you realize that you're completely naked right and as a foreigner i mean if you just give them trouble they could just decide to revoke your visa and the way but, you go. But, I mean, but if you're black from America, you're like, oh, just like mom used to make. This is just like home. <laughs> like, here we go. I mean, I'm, I'm prepared for this. Oh, my goodness. Mm. But, but, so, you know, how, how black people are treated in China is another issue. And there's a there's a long conversation to have there. Uh, it, and, and I guess it kind of relates to, you know, so much social progress happens through contestation. And... And when all of the engines of truth are kind of lined up on one side, there, there's less contestation. Right? There's less bumping up against each other and working out accommodations and how do we all get along. And so I've often felt that there is kind of you know penalty to the speed of cultural development when there's there's sort of too much uniformity. Uh, but you know, what are the engines of truth? And kind of the search for truth. Can we just unpack that pen- penalty to the speed of cultural development? Because we did a podcast. It was early on. It might have been our first episode. I don't know. Like our, the one in China, we were talking about the Devos crowd and the affinity for Chinese efficiency socioeconomically. So mm. there, because mm. I'm just thinking in terms of it, we're talking about oversimplifying and the danger of it. And I'm oversimplifying, but but is there kind of? It's almost like okay for the kind of cultural progress you're talking about, like. And I, I would assume we're talking about progress in terms of openness, freedoms, and things like that. Like the 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 the, the contesting might slow down other things we like, but mm. in the interest of giving people space and freedom to develop, and and for a laboratory that helps discover the truth. Now you could create more uniformity, which might make certain policy objectives more efficient to achieve. But the the cost is a certain kind of development of the human society so you know very very simple example we can probably all latch on to right now think of think of the me too movement over the last year and how uh how the very public uh unveiling of cases you know prominent people who've engaged in sexual discrimination harassment rape abuse uh have 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 forced society 
very quickly to you know have have a deep and searching conversation about you know basically the future of feminism the future of gender relations and and if you look at you know look no further than in your own country you know who who was who was running for office in uh, the 2018 midterms and was elected in the democratic side look at who is running for the 2020 presidency in the US look at you know what is you know conversations that are happening across uh, the corporate world and kind of the advanced liberal democracy about about gender about gender relations I mean, it, and it, I mean, Me Too movement has so quickly become a movement. Contrast that to in China, where there is some of that, but it is it is uh, a, a far quieter thing. And given that uh, you know the state has authority over the media and authority over large swaths of the private sector, and and authority over the academy, um, authority over religion. Right. Authority over over many different engines of starting critical conversations in society. Um, it's 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 kind of remarkable. I mean, the Communist Party's senior leadership is all men. Um, I'm I'm sure that men being men uh, and put in positions of hierarchy and, and authority um, and, and 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 situations where there's giant disparity between their power and the power of the women around them. That there is just rampant right sexual abuse taking place within that hierarchy. Don't hear very much about it now. Maybe that's because it's not happening, but uh, more likely is that it has happened. But there's a, a less contested sort of public space in which we can sort of talk these things out. And so, you know, in contrast to I think the the very rapid and 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 deep exploration that happening in the United States here in the UK about men and women in the workplace and how to negotiate that. I suspect that a far less rapid mutation of gender relations is taking place within within the Chinese context. It's sort of like water, you know, I mean if 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 you raise the temperature and the molecules are moving faster, the reactions happen faster. Um in in China uh, there is a uh, just a strong conservative agenda to say, "Whoa, okay, you know that that could be a rapid reaction. Let's turn the temperature down until you know we who have the monopoly on power can choose like the direction that this reaction is going. What would some of the unintended consequences of it be?" And 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 so I think that you, you take that one example and you multiply it across the whole universe of possible contests taking place in society. And the sum difference is that yeah, the the cultural reactions do maybe happen. Yeah, it's interesting. More managed pace. If you're a sort of modern Protestant, you look at the Catholic Church and say, "Well, their biggest hang-up or their biggest liability is they're really slow to change." And then, if you're a sort of devoted Roman Catholic, you'd say, "Our biggest virtue is that we're slow to change." Right? <laughs> like, right. Where, right. where you think that because that sort of you know Heraclitus, you know everything, you don't step in the same river twice. Everything move more movement, the more change you get, more dynamism. The kind of reaction to that would be well trying to be like well we'll get this sorted out in two or three hundred years you know like you kind of <laughs> right i mean that's that's the other side of the of the coin and you know and that's not what i mean i tend to be on the with you that, that i well this is why we're both advocates of liberal democracy right that, that a certain kind of contesting is it is is what we need for the project to go forward right and and so that's why i think that for example you know kind of at a at a societal level 
you know, having, you know, conservative religious institutions within, uh, you know, fast changing liberal cultures is probably a good thing because it complexifies the truth, right? It, it, it forces challenging conversations to take place before society can kind of reach an ultimate groupthink and say, no, this is where, this is what's right and that's what's wrong. And so actually, so it's it. That, that's a good extension into, you know, some of the questions that I've been grappling with recently is how, so how, like, let's kind of do a stock take on how healthy is the contest for truth in advanced liberal democracy? Uh, because on the one hand, you could look at, I mean, just look at all the divisiveness in society. There, there must be an extremely healthy contest for truth happening uh, because we are so divided over what's true. But on the other hand, if if part of what marks a healthy content is that the truth is becoming a more complicated thing, that we are complicating the conversations, then you might say, whoa, actually, there's something kind of sick happening here because the truth, what divides us isn't some you know, sort of different perspectives on a complicated truth. What divides us is that we've both got separate, simple truths. And, and, and so why is it that the truth is becoming such a simple thing within democratic society? I think that's a really important question for us to sit with. Yeah, I feel like we've talked about this a little bit, but in one of the early episodes, but I'll bring it back up. Michael Polanyi, who is a philosopher of science, and it, it kind of came up in the mid 20th century in Germany, uh, was Jewish, emigrated, I think before things got really bad in the Third Reich. But he was uh, a brilliant chemist, and I think he was uh, also an MD or something. And he realized that he got, when he was doing his doctorate or his habilitation shaft or whatever that you know one of the advanced doctorates wait what was that word it's habilitation shaft there's like a couple different doctorates (laughs) in germany so i'm trying i forget which one it was but he realized he his advisor he got the answer right it was in biochemistry but his work was wrong like he knew what he was doing was right but he couldn't it took him a while to prove it right and so he was talking about, he realized at that point how, how subjective science is, right? That we have this mm. objective view of science, but it's really more subjective, or at least mm. the scientists are fully subjective, as fully subjective as anybody else, right? Like, why do you study flowers and not rocks and waters? Water, you know, it, it, like even it, when you're choosing field of study, there's, there's su- subjectivity. Mm. So he eventually becomes a philosopher of science, right? Moves to England and he... I think his most famous book is called Personal Knowledge, but he wrote numerous books and he had this conception that rather than objective, subjective truth, we ought to move to something called like private and public truth. And so mm. private truth by nature is more mm. particular, more sub- more subjective, and, and, and that sort of subjectivity reigns there. So like we might have an argument about whether, you know, you should have veg- vegetables or fruit on a pizza. I would say never. Uh, you know, but some people... <laughs> would say, yeah, have veg- have fruit and meat, Hawaiian pizza, right? That's something that, like, it would be very difficult to litigate in what he would think is public truth. He says, well, I, if I can just interrupt you there, I think what Polanyi, he, he, would, he would be arguing with you in your definitions of what are fruits and vegetables. That's true. This is true. He'd be like, oh, you're, 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 you're trapped, you scientists, you're trapped in a subjective life. You know, almost I nothing mean, we call a nut is really a nut. Like, the hazelnut, the chestnut, almost everything else is not a nut. Like, everything well, we apparently. Eat, I can't remember who the who the scientist was. Oh, what was his name? But who, who spent his whole life studying fish, and and the 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 
ultimate conclusion of a lifetime of study, scientifically studying fish, was that there's no such thing as a fish. That, you know, the the differences between species and fish are, you know, larger than, say, between uh, bumblebees and blue jays. And, and, you know, they both fly, but they're very different. And, and we've made this mistake within our science, and within our culture of thinking that everything that swims in water is a fish. But in fact, they're not. That was a completely different, I, I'm sorry, if, if complete Arist- digression. If My Aristotle, point is- If Aristotle could be alive today, he would love it because he's like, this is what he lived for. And like, you know, all these more, he'd have so many more taxonomical resources. But yeah, like Polanyi basically says, you know, like when you have, when you're proposing a public truth, you know, this is like peer reviewed journals. You're saying, hey, this truth is not just true in my laboratory. And it's not just true at my university. Mm. It's true. Mm. You know, if you do this in any laboratory, in any context, I think it'll hold up. And, you know, this is mm. in, in, in humanities, too, we do this. Like, well, if somebody writes a biography of Winston Churchill or somebody does a, a, a political science thesis on, you know, the interpretation of Aristotle's politics. And, you know, we peer review and say, yeah, this is this is this deserves to be in the contest. It's it's moved from subjective opinion to a sort of an idea that ought to be publicly debated and maybe. And what he thinks what we call objective truth is more like it, it's passed the, so many public tests that it's it's gone into a place where it's really reliable. And mm. and, and so it's not, you know, it, it, it's not relativistic. And yet it, and yet it takes into account the subjective messiness in any kind of discourse. But I think what he would say is with our siloing of cable news and various web sources and stuff that we we get these really big pub private truth silos right so so really nobody has to or very, very seldom is in a place like the united states does something ever get to public truth and like public policy because Where there's a test of is this reliable and, yeah, yeah because yeah. because like if you're on fox or msnbc or cnn or that basically the the it's not like a peer-reviewed sort of hey we're testing this to see if it can be on the field of contest it's sort of May, the, the highest thing is the subjective field of contest. Like, is this one of the top hashtags or the top ratings driver on Fox or MSNBC? Then it's then we throw it out there, not in a kind of public contestation, but like in the battle of opinion. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that and what the other thing that worries me is that, you know, when you think about sort of the subjective frames that we work in and, you know, religion you know, sort of organized religion looks at the world in a certain way, political class, sort of the world in a private sector, certain way. And I think, that, you know, that's also part of the intent within um, sort of the contestation of these public truths is, you know, that, that reality is this messy thing and no one can sort of touch all aspects of it themselves. And, and you just couldn't, can't hold it all in our heads. So we, we rely upon many different people to see different pieces of it, and then, and then, you know, through through dialogue, we come to a you know a, a, a wider awareness that our own views and experiences and perspective can bring to us, and and that's part that's part of what gives the the truth kind of a a a, a thick reality, and it can only be sense- built from the ground up. I mean, there's this old parable or myth about or story about the this indian king who is who brings an elephant into the court and has several blind men say what's the elephant like and and one 
you know, touches the leg and says it's like a tree trunk. Another touches the the uh, trunk and says it's like a boa constrictor. And another touches the tail and says it's like a, a thin rope. And the king says, ha, 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 you know, look, this is, I am the only one that sees the elephant there. This is, but the thing about that analogy is it assumes there's a view from nowhere, right? That someone mm. sees the whole elephant. No one sees the whole elephant, right? Like, right, we're, right. we're only, and that's mm. not to, I mean, and it's interesting because like you, that could push you to nihilism, right? But, but no, I mean, I think it, it, it's actually, you know, faith and doubt are the friends of the truth, right? Like believing and doubting, right? It, it's, it's certainty, a, a certain kind of false certainty that, mm. that requires the view of that mythical king that gets you to nihilism, right? W- when you realize that there's only this kind of messy interaction of believing and doubting right. on a public scale, that you, they actually become to truth. So let's, let's, take the, let's take the elephant metaphor, right? And so we've got... Let's you know, make it ele- a huge elephant, a okay, big it's, elephant. <laughs> it's massive. And it's orange. It's very and, orange. And, and, and so because it's so massive, so we've got, you know, we got a bunch of people who are feeling this elephant up. <laughs> right and but like the the metaphor kind of imagines so you know a bunch of people feeling it and they're all sort of sharing oh i feel this i feel that you know this is part of the truth and this is part of the truth and i guess the imagined metaphor is that well if we all kind of put our pieces of what we see and feel together then we collectively get some you know reasonable approximation of okay this is what's real the the question is what happens if Everybody's doing that, but what happens if some the perspectives of some people are weighted way more heavily than others? How does that skew our overall picture of things? If 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 only the people who are feeling the trunk or the ears are really listened in society, then then what is this thing? And so, you know, to give context, so in in the China example, for example, whatever anybody is seeing or feeling is sort of contained by this rule that it's ultimately got to support public order and, and and political order order is the primary the primary virtue the tr- primary value that sort of has overriding importance over any other considerations i you could argue that something similar is happening within democratic societies around sort of economic interest which is to say that you know if 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 the business case isn't there then then you're not really making any case at all and and you know it, I don't want to make just sort of the general, you know, leftist critique of capitalism or anything like that. But it's been interesting to look at, you know, very specific cases where you can see how the introduction of sort of management thinking and economic thinking into spheres of society who are responsible for producing sort of pieces of the truth tends to just duplicate what the people who are feeling the trunk and feeling the ears have already shown us. And and so the the most recent case that I've been sort of researching and, and working out is uh, the academy, higher education, um, and how the academy looks at immigration. And, and I think and it's this really is interesting for our listeners too who might not know a lot about your bio. You kind of live in a couple worlds, right? Because you spend some of your time in doing continuing ed stuff in the context of a very established academic but even there, you're working with business people often, like in the in the academy, and you do a lot of work in the private sector. So you sort of flip back and forth between the the, the where the place where the market rightly probably should have a, a degree of weight, and one where 
the norms maybe should be different. Yeah, I, I like to put on whatever hat makes me look best for the audience that I'm addressing. Whatever oh. mo- makes you look slimming is, 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 is what you know. Is it supposed to be pinstripes or? Yeah, horizontal like, stripes are you know, generally make you look wider. When have you ever have you when have you ever seen a shirt with horizontal stripes? I have stripes? two sweaters with horizontal stripes. Okay, well, I, I believe that you do, but. Sweaters, yeah, but have you ever have you ever worn it like a business shirt? No, like a button ex- shirt with horizontal stripes. They don't exist. They don't, they don't exist. exist. That's no, very they interesting. They don't exist. Fact, maybe we should start that business. That the line for we'll, spell, we'll, for we'll, spell we'll, people we'll, that want to look bigger. We do like we'll do some kind of crowdfunding campaign and see if if people really want it. I can hook us up. I know people how that, to get this guys stuff that want to look bigger from like the chest up. It would be good. Okay, so that'll be our target market. There you go. There you All go. Right. We'll, 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 you know, we'll spend a hundred bucks on Google AdWords or something and see if just see if we have <laughs> customer base. <laughs> I'll bet, like within a week, somebody's going to pick that up and run with it. I mean, power to them. Um, so you're right. So I, I do kind of move around different spheres, and you know, but I thought this would be an interesting case. How the academy talks about immigration. Uh, one, because you know, at least in theory, the academy of you know universities are 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 meant to be this like the independent the core sort of independent truth generating engine of society that's your role in society go look for truth wherever you can find it and on the other hand immigration because this is the most divisive issue across the advanced liberal democracies today and so when you look at the intersection of those two things, it's really interesting to see that what the academy has been doing sort of as a sector has been taking, you know, very clearly one side of the immigration debate, which is uh, immigration is a good thing. You know, the, the global circulation of brains is a great thing. Uh, ideas and knowledge are completely blind. And, and so the more diversity we can put together, um, the better we can do our job was just to search for knowledge. And, and the argument makes total sense. But what, what, I get, what I get concerned about is that you know, universities are also heavily self-interested. 30, 40 years ago uh, in the U.S., certainly in the U.K., Canada, the university sector was largely funded by the state, public funding. And so the idea was, look, you don't need to go chase for money. You're a cost center for society. That ensures your independence. So you know, go and do whatever you want to do. Fast forward to today, and there's a very different view. Uh, higher education isn't just a public good, it's a private benefit. And so the view is that the people that get the degrees, the students, should be paying the majority of the costs. So tuition fees have gone way up, uh, public funding has gone way down. And one of the ways that the whole higher education sector, especially in the Anglosphere, like Australia, Canada, United States, UK, one of the ways that they've made up for the withdrawal of state funding is to attract more and more uh, foreign students, international students who pay big, fat uh, tuition fees to to study abroad, which is all fine, which is all good, except when you recognize that... So the, the rapid expansion of foreign students within higher education, kind of the Anglosphere countries, um, has had all sorts of perverse consequences that maybe no one intended, but they are very real. Right. You see, you see universities uh, lowering admission standards in order to be able to accept students who, who, you know, honestly probably don't have the language ability to be contributing to the intellectual mission of the university. 
Uh, you see them plowing resources into degree programs that are sexy, that attract the fees, but aren't necessarily maybe where their priorities should be. Uh, you see foreign students who um, you know, not only put themselves into debt to get into these programs, but you know, in some cases um, aren't even interested in being a student at all. They just want the visa so that they can get into the society and get a job and bring their families over. I mean, all of that happens. Uh, but you also see the local economies around these universities uh, grabbing at this pool of a very low cost, very vulnerable labor to uh, fill all sorts of jobs. And, and, and the first employer who's doing that is the universities themselves who employ these foreign students to uh, run their cafeterias and to do administrative work and to clean the labs and all of that. So on the one hand, you've got um, a university sector who's trying to make an evidence-based argument that immigration is a good thing. On the other hand, they're so conflicted because you know, in the U.S., here in the U.K., especially in Australia, the statistics are crazy. I mean, their business model depends upon open borders, especially for, for higher education. And so does the greater metro area, right? This is, you know, so much of the sort of nationalist populism on, on both sides of the Atlantic. You have these metro areas that are very pro-immigration, right? And with with Because it works for people on every end of the economic ladder, right? It works for the upper class, the one percenters. You get the best software people. You get the, it works for the universities. It works for uh, local businesses. A lot, you get a bunch of industrious immigrants that want to come over and do a lot of jobs that maybe national born citizens aren't thrilled about doing. And so but then you don't have those same opportunities out in the hinterlands, right? When you're out in the sort of less urbanized metro developed areas, you don't, there's not this. So, so you get, one group of systems, I mean, Hillary Clinton won one sixth of the counties in the United States, these little municipalities, you know, one sixth, right? That one sixth of the counties generated something like 67% of the GDP of the country. So, wow. <laughs> and so they have so a talk huge, about skew, but yeah, so, and they've got a so, huge interest in the kind of immigration policies you're talking right. about. So, you know, so I'm personally uh, like, I'm, you know, well, on public record, I've published books on this. I'm pretty radically pro immigration. But I also have kind of the self-awareness to recognize. Are you pretty, ra- pretty radically or, or strongly radically? Radi- I don't know. I kind of gave myself a weasel room. I'm still on thinking about it. one to five, moderately. So yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll get into that later. But, you know, I also recognize that, you know, what I'm seeing is the economic truth. That there, there is such a strong and obvious argument in the big picture. And maybe local pockets of, of economic losses, sure. But in the big picture, systemically, the economic value of freer migration is just you know, so obvious to me. But, you know, that's just one piece of what should be an enormously complex societal truth. Right? I mean, what, what, is, what is the moral truth here? And and what is the um, what is the cultural truth? Right? What what is the psychological truth? What is, what is the truth about the the capacity of societies and of individuals to uh, accommodate diversity and to integrate versus the need for some kind of homogeneity in order to you know have have a predictable society. I mean, Tower of Babel in the Bible, right, was sort of an argument that there is some sort of upper limit to 
the capacity of society to deal with heterogeneity before it just breaks down. So, so given that immigration really should be such a complex and contested truth, I actually, you know, when I step back and think about it, I, I find it almost like a dereliction of duty that, you know, Universities UK, which is the lobbying uh, organization that represents, that speaks publicly on behalf of all the universities in the UK, for example, and similar bodies in the US and Australia, come out publicly say, immigration is a good thing. Here's the economic argument why. I look at that and I really start to fear, have, have the economic logics to which you, because of how society funds higher education, are now so shackled, have they affected your ability to actually contribute other aspects of the truth to this conversation that is dividing society? And, and if all you're doing is just, is just mirroring reflecting, you know, strong and valid arguments, but that are already being made by, say, the private sector, then are you also, in a way, harming society's capacity to explore complex truths by making sort of one side of the argument so hegemonic that if you don't share that argument, you kind of feel like there's no place in, 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 in the public realm to, to voice, alter, not alternatives, that truth, but to voice other aspects that aren't being aren't being spoken about and amplified and 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 considered enough. Yeah, and I feel like what you're that was a long monologue. No, I like that. And I, <laughs> and, and, and I th- think what you're getting at here, there's this sort of reductionism, right? There's this temptation constantly to reductionism. So if you're the market, right? You you want to reduce everything to market analysis and 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 have that lens. It's the adage, right? If all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And you know you have interestingly too, you have this kind of reductive nature of looking at things. For populists on the right, you have a kind of ethnography lens, right? Like, well, you know, we got to look at you know real America, the forgotten people, right? That pairs up with a left-wing interest, right? Like the sort of multicultural postmodernism. There's only, there's not ethics. There's Buddhist ethics, feminist ethics, South Asian ethics, like all these, you know, everything mm. is, is, is pushing towards silos, right? Clifford Geertz, the anthropologist, right? That book, no local knowledge. Well, really, is there anything when we're honest, if you're reflective, worse than local knowledge? Like if some, what's the worst thing <laughs> that a colleague can say to you, right? They come up to you and say, let me tell you about this dream I had last night. And you're just saying, oh my God, I want to kill myself because they're going to be like, I was in a factory and I was like, <laughs> unless they're going to say something like interesting, like I really, the dream, like I was having sex with my mother and I really think it means I want to have sex with my girlfriend or something like that. Unless they have some Freudian interpretation. If they're just recounting a dream they had, you're like, kill me, get me out of this conversation. And yet very often, I think with, with the sort Maybe of- Maybe I have better dreams than you. I'm sorry. Just exactly. Aside, I mean, but I, I, I have a completely like, wow, I, I had a dream I, I met I an mean, author last night, and I, I wanted him to sign books that I liked of his. And it was very. I had, a, I had a dream with Patrick Stewart a couple of That's very strange. Were you number one? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? This is, this is whether it's for market interests, whether it's for populist right wing or sort of fashionable left wing interests. There seems to be this desire to get everything to private truth, as Paul would say, as, as opposed to public truth. And, 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 and for this public truth, we need a bunch of people, as you're saying in this map, that acknowledge that their lens is different and yet mm. a, a, an essential part of the pie as are others, right? So you have to have this, right. yeah. you have to have this yeah. love for yourself 
And also th- this openness to people that come at the truth from a different angle than your piece. So this is why everybody needs to listen to our podcast. I exactly. Think, because, you know, what and, and what really got me started exploring this whole question of, you know, how so how how well are society's different truth engines doing at giving society, you know, a complex truth that kind of, you know, gives us enough stuff to work with on the table to kind of find our way together. But what got me on that whole track was I just I'm just so sick of, you know, with all of these are some deep structural structural questions. And with all of this that the the only kind of the trope, the thing people repeat. So what are we going to do? Oh, well, we need, you know, more critical thinking in in school. As if as if somehow that is the thing that's missing. That, you know, our inability to put another couple of hours each term for kids on, you know, how to dissect the logic of an argument is responsible for the the crisis of truth that society finds itself in. And and every time I hear somebody advocate critical thinking skills, I get sent right back to my years living in Beijing, which hammered home for me that the capacity to think critically, it, it's not just an individual capacity. It's, it's a property of the system. And is the system set up to, to engender a contest over truth, or is it set up to shut that contest down? And, and that is going to you know, so over-determine whatever impact you know, logic courses people took in elementary. And so hopefully, hopefully that's somehow part of what, you know, what we're doing right now is to, to try to stimulate and open up a much just wider exploration of, of the situation that we are in. Because there are no easy fixes. There's only, you know, I think, a very tough, conscientious working with one another to kind of understanding what society we have built. And if we want to change some aspects of it, then, you know, how do we, how do we make those changes? And, and the first start, step, I think, is sort of being conscious of how we got to where we are today. Yeah, it's interesting that, the, and the significance of this, there's a, a retired philosopher from Princeton, Harry Frankfurt, who wrote a book that was very famous, made the rounds everywhere, called On Bullshit. And it's all about the nature of bullshitting. And when you're talking and you're not really caring whether you're... What you're I don't saying. need to read that book. Dude, I it's, it's, yeah, exactly. Anybody in Western culture <laughs> has to do it so much when you have to talk out of your depth. Then he wrote a follow-up, a short monograph called On the Truth. And in the conclusion, mm. he talks about how in human development, when we learn early on that the world is not us, like that, we're, that we learn where we end and the world begins, we learn that we can't just control other people. And that, that that's a really important human developmental lesson, that there are things outside our control, our subjectivity, our identity. And he says, and this is the conclusion, thus our recognition and understanding of our own identity arises out of and depends integral, integral, integrally on our appreciation of a reality that is definitively independent of ourselves. In other words, it arises out of and depends on our recognition that there are facts and truths over which we cannot hope to exercise direct or immediate control. If there were no such facts or truths, if the world invariably and unresistingly became whatever we might like it or wish it to be, we would be unable to distinguish ourselves from what is other than ourselves, and we would have no sense of what in particular we ourselves are. It is only through our recognition of a world stubbornly independent, a world of stubbornly independent reality, fact, and truth, that we come both to recognize ourselves as beings distinct from others 
and to articulate the specific nature of our own identities. How then can we fail to take the importance of factuality and of reality seriously? How can we fail to care about truth? We cannot. That's seriously how the book ends? That's the end of the book. So, so I mean, he's making this argument for human identity. Well, it just, he doesn't let you off lightly, does no, he? No, no, because but, but that's it. You think like there's a cost to living in the fake news, truth silo society. Like you, you, things like love, understanding, mm. uh, you know, human connection, these things, the, the, the less we have a society that, that cultivates mm. and appreciates mm. the, the, the value of factuality and truth, the less we can be our real self. Yes. The, the whole human experience becomes somehow thinner. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. That's, I, he should have ended the book that way. Because <laughs> that paragraph was like, dude, who was your editor? It's so powerful. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's like, oh, you're hey, retired. Go, you're just like, put it in the show notes. I got to read that a couple Mike more times drop. before. Mike I, drop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you gotta, you've got to have, imagine, I'm trying to imagine what is the audience of people with which you could, um, you could say that paragraph and drop the mic. At, 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 I mean, because honestly, the first thing that I would do after the mic drop is like turn to my left and turn to my right and ask, like, did, are you with me? Understand. Are you with me? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what are you asking me to do? Um, on a, on a, on, on a lighter note, and then I think we need to, we need to wrap up, but on a lighter note. I remember why I was thinking, why I dreamt about uh, Patrick Stewart, because he was uh, he was here in London on a show. He was promoting, uh, I forget what, but the, the UK version of doing the the late night talk show circuit, right? And he was telling the story of when he was, um, you know, first sort of started filming uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation as Captain Jean Luc Picard. And apparently, the original thinking was that uh, Jean Luc Picard should speak with a French accent. And, uh, and so he said, "So would you like to? Would you like to hear what it'd be like?" And like I was, oh yeah, yeah, we want to hear Jean Luc Picard with a French accent. He says, "Space, the final frontier. <laughs> These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise." <laughs> it's good. It's good that they asked that one. Like mm, you're never going to get into space. Though, it's right? it's not space. <laughs> And let's space. stop. Let's stop space, dude. <laughs> at the first planet with these stinky cheese. <laughs> uh, and and good wine, of course. And exactly. good wine. Well, my friend, yeah. keep pursuing the truth, as will I, and we will talk again next week. We've got so much work to do. That's we what do. I realized. From we this do, conversation. man. To love and to work—that is what Freud says is, is is maturation, right? So it's Valentine's Day. We're working now. We'll love to love and to work. Put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Take care, my friend. Thanks for listening to The Atlas Project. We'd love to hear your feedback. Drop us a line or send us a message on Facebook. If you really like what we're doing, please rate us on iTunes and write a review. It helps so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks for listening and facing the new world with us.